One of the chief blessings of life is close friends. The ancient Roman statesman Cicero wrote, With the exception of wisdom, I am inclined to think there's nothing better than friendship that has been given to man by the immortal gods. A true friendship isn't spoiled by the changing of seasons or the turning of fortunes. Now, the Bible says, Proverbs 17, that a friend loves at all times, especially in times of trouble. Friends are close by. They are comforting us with their presence, strengthening us with their words, and sympathizing with their hearts. Many of you know that I just laid my stepfather Butch to rest a couple of weeks ago. Many of you were there. And one of the remarkable things that I enjoyed at the memorial service was friends that my mom has known and stayed in contact with since first grade. I'm not going to tell how many years that's been. That's a long time. And they were all here in force, encouraging her. They've been sending her texts and messages. Truly, friendship has been a huge encouragement. Just this last week, I was reflecting on the fact that Jono Brooks, where's Jono? Did he leave? Oh, there you are back there. That you and I have been friends for almost 35 years. You can see it in your beard. And we were talking about this. Matt Ecton in the office the other day says, I can't imagine being friends with anybody that long. Matt Ecton can't imagine being alive that long yet. All of us can have stories upon stories of friends that have loved us well, sympathized with us, encouraged us, made us laugh. One might wonder, though, whether the Son of God even needed friends. Or whether his office as Messiah kept him in some way from human intimacy. So often we think about friendships as Relationships that fill some kind of need that we have. What would the one who needs nothing need from friends, we might think? Or even more than that, what would friendship look like for the one who is very man of very man like you and I are, and yet without sin. In our passage this afternoon, Jesus is going to call Lazarus his friend. He was known as the one whom Jesus loves. And this love extended to Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. And so it's remarkable that the Son of God needed, wanted, enjoyed his friends. And yet what's even more remarkable and what we're going to see in our passage is not so much that our Savior enjoyed his friends, but that our Savior is a friend to sinners like us. John 11, which is where we're going to be this afternoon, it's the last section of John's gospel before Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem. It's an interlude from his public affairs and of his increasing conflict with the religious leaders. 
It's also a time of ministry to those who are closest to him. Jesus is going to seek to strengthen the faith of his friends and his disciples before he takes up suffering and cross in that most holy Passion Week. That's what we're going to consider in our passage today. And as we do, I want you to consider just this one big idea centered on the idea of friendship. That as the resurrection and the life... Jesus Christ is the best friend for sinners. As the resurrection and life, Jesus Christ is the best friend for sinners. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word? John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister And Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after he heard, after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, and you're wanting to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend, Lazarus, has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Well, let us go, that we can go ahead and die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, Oh, listen, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. 
I only wanted to read down to 27. I'm actually going to preach through the entire chapter, 57 verses. I'm going to try to average about 35 seconds a verse. And what we're going to see is six things centering on friendship. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to consider in Christ a friend who loves. A friend who loves. In verses 7 through 16, we're going to see a friend in death. A friend in death. And then in verses 17 all the way through verses 29, we're going to see a friend forever. A forever friend, if you will. Then in verses 30 to 37, we'll see, fourthly, in Christ, a friend who wept. A friend who wept. And then picking up in verse 38, all the way through verse 46, we'll see a friend who prays. That Christ is a friend who prays. And lastly, in verses 47 to 57, we see that Christ is a friend who gathers and divides. That he gathers and divides. Consider that first idea with me. That Christ is a friend who loves. We've already read the verses together. But here we see there in verse 3 and again in verse 5 that the sisters have come and they're making their appeal to Jesus on the basis of his love for Lazarus. Notice they're making no appeal for their great love for Jesus. No, they make their appeal on the basis of his love. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. And we see that his love extends not only to Lazarus, but also in verse 5 to Martha and her sister, as well as Lazarus. And we see a couple of things in this introductory verses. As we just consider these book-ended ideas of love, first of all, we see that Even those whom Christ loves get sick. So let us do away with that silly idea that that if we have enough faith or that if we're really in Christ, that he would rid us of all of our sicknesses in this life. That is the language of hucksters that you see on your television. And that is a false gospel and you need to flee. We see here that Jesus loved Lazarus and Lazarus grew ill. And so let us be reminded often that whether it be the weakest and the most infirmed among us or the strongest among us, it makes no matter. Jesus loves us the same. But consider also that Jesus is a Christian's best friend in sickness. I remember in last December when we received my stepfather's diagnosis. And what they said was, we can treat you, but we cannot cure you. What a good physician we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. In all our doing, we must never forget that the best and ablest and wisest helper is in heaven at God's right hand. Like afflicted Job, our first action must be to fall on our knees and worship. Like Hezekiah, we must spread our matters before the Lord. Like the holy sisters at Bethany, we must send up a prayer to Christ. Let us not forget in the hurry and the excitement of our feelings that none can help like him. And that he is merciful, loving, and gracious. Thirdly, consider here, especially in verses 5 and 6, 
that Jesus' timing is always best. We see that Jesus heard of Lazarus' illness. We see that Jesus loved Lazarus. And as soon as he heard in verse 6, he didn't go see Lazarus. He stayed two days longer. What a remarkable statement. Jesus didn't wait because he was indifferent to these friends or because he was still trying to figure out how he felt about them. Jesus loved them, so he waited. And he waited because he loved them. So Jesus' timing is is always best. And we may make appeals on the basis of his love, just like Mary and Martha did here. But even when we make our appeals, we do not presume upon his timing. As one brother once put it, God is never on time. Not according to our watches, at least. But he's never late. He's always there right when he means to be. And why did he wait? Well, we see two reasons. Number one, we see, first of all, in verse four, that it was for the glory of God. He says that it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All the way back in chapter one of the Gospel of John, John says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The very glory of God manifested in flesh in the man Jesus Christ. Then in the very next chapter, chapter 2, at his first miracle in Cana, it says that that miracle was, quote, a manifestation of his glory. And so what is he going to do? Why is he waiting? Because in a new way, in fact, his very last miracle of his earthly ministry before he goes into to Jerusalem to die. His last and his greatest miracle will serve to be the greatest manifestation of his glory so that, secondly, he might serve the good of his friends. It is first of all that his glory might be revealed to prove that he was God. But it was secondly for the good of his friends. That's what we see in verses 7 to 16, isn't it? He says explicitly that in verse 15 to his disciples, it is for your sake that we're doing this. But when we just scan through verses 7 to 10, we see that Jesus leads us in perplexing ways sometimes, doesn't he? Why would Jesus take them back to the place where people wanted to kill them? You see that in the previous chapter in John 10. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. That's where they just left. Jesus is going, hey, let's go back there. And the disciples are going, what are you talking about, Willis? That's not where we want to go. Don't you know what just happened there? Jesus is your memory fritzing out. Why would Jesus take them back to the place where people wanted to kill them? They're perplexed. And we often are too, aren't we? That we are often led by the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that we cannot see, in ways that do not make sense to us. And yet, what we find in these handful of verses is that had the disciples not gone back to Judea, they would not have seen the miracle in Bethany. And we learn that in all these things, our master knows best. And it encourages us to trust him, even when his ways are perplexing to us. Even when the paths that he leads us on seem to be opposite of what we think is wise, he always intends the best for us. And we can trust him. But notice in verse 11, it says here, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. 
First of all, notice in that phrase in verse 11 that Jesus calls Lazarus a friend. Friend is an important theme in the Gospel of John. When you get to John 15, Jesus pulls his disciples over. And what does he say to them? He says, I no longer call you my servants. I call you my what? Friends. Why? Because they had all kinds of shared interests? Because they enjoyed playing racquetball together? It was because he brought them near and he disclosed to them the mysteries of the gospel that had been given to him by his father. What united Christ to his disciples as friends was the gospel. They believed in what he had taught and he called them his friends. And it's no different with Lazarus. So when we think about Lazarus, we're not just thinking about somebody that Jesus enjoyed spending time with. This is somebody who has believed upon Jesus, who has believed the very testimony that Christ has given about himself concerning his ministry. So he says, Lazarus is our friend. Same team. And he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't just call Lazarus a friend, but he is a friend even in death. This is no mere sentimentality. Lazarus is a friend of Christ even after death. The friendship of Christ is stronger than death, and it goes beyond the grave that he's a friend even in death. Secondly, or thirdly rather, notice that Jesus says that Lazarus has merely fallen asleep. The Old Testament often uses the phrases, when somebody dies, they're resting with their fathers. It's the language of resting. Luke, in the book of Acts, when Stephen was stoned, says that he fell asleep. The Apostle Paul, he describes Christians who die as those who have fallen asleep in Christ. You remember Jesus when the family summoned him to help their daughter who just died? Remember what he said? He said, the girl is not dead, but she is what? Sleeping. Beloved, even though death is our great enemy, it can do the Christian no harm. J.C. Ryle again says this, Let us call to mind in such an hour that our great friend takes thought for our bodies as well as for our souls, and that he will not allow one hair of our heads to perish. Because Christ is a friend even in death, the dying Christian is able to say with the psalmist, In peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. He says he's only Sleeping, But then notice again in verse 11, I intend to wake him up. Lazarus had died and he's going to wake him up. But I want you to notice something else. Look at verse 14. He says, Lazarus has died. And look at this weird phrase. And I am glad. Lazarus is dead. Really? Good news. What? What does that mean? Well, notice what he says. That he's glad on the one hand for what we've already seen all the way back up in verse 4. That he's glad that Lazarus has died because his death will, will, will serve the manifestation of the glory of the Son of God. But he's glad also, notice in verse 15, I'm glad for your sake. Why? Because I'm about to do something. And it will, in verse 15, be so that you may believe. Believe what exactly? 
That's what we see as the object of the following paragraph, beginning in verse 17, all the way through 29. And we see at the beginning there in, in verse 17 that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Popular Jewish thought at the time said that a soul would periodically revisit its body for a few days after death. Four days have now passed. He is dead, dead. And so Jesus deliberately, intentionally postponed his return until there would be no hope and no doubt, or no doubt that Lazarus was dead and no hope or explanation for a resurrection by any other means than direct intervention from God himself. And then as we see down in verse 21, Jesus comes in. Martha hears that he's drawn near and she comes out to him and look at her words in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here. If you glance down all the way to verse 33 or 32, Mary says the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here. Do you think that might have been the topic of discussion in Jesus' absence? How many times after sending for Jesus did the sisters look out their window and reassure themselves, oh, he's coming. He's coming, right? He's, he's got to come. He didn't come. But here we've once again in this passage been clued into the mind of Christ. Martha and Mary didn't know that Jesus designed to stay two days longer. They didn't know that Jesus was glad that Lazarus had died. And that makes her next statement of faith even more remarkable. Even though she says, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. And yet, verse 22, whatever you ask, God will give you. D.A. Carson summarizes her words this way. Even now, he says in her bereavement, she has not lost her confidence in Jesus. And still recognizes the peculiar intimacy that he enjoys with his father. An intimacy that ensures unprecedented fruitfulness to his prayers. And so Martha knows Jesus. But Martha also needs to grow in her knowledge of Christ. And her comfort in this moment and for all of life depends on it. And so we're going to see in verses 23 and 24 that Martha believes indeed that Jesus is the Christ. She confesses as much at the end of the paragraph. She believes in a future bodily resurrection. She believes that Jesus is the Christ. But she hasn't put these two things together yet. And so here Jesus connects the dots for her. And in verses 25 and 26, this is what Jesus says. I am the resurrection and the life. That whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. At least two things are being implied here. When Jesus says, I am the life, he is saying, I am the source of all life. Chapter 1 in John, verse 4. In him was life. That he was life in and of himself, such that nothing outside of himself, existing as God, very God for all of eternity, he was not dependent upon anything for his life, but was life in and of itself, such that all other life flows out of the fellowship that the triune God has adjoined for all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, I am the life, the source of all life. 
but it also implies a second thing. He says, I'm not just the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He's the source of eternal life. That his statement recognizes the reality of sin in the world, the reality of death because of sin in the world. And as a result, he's not merely the source of all that is. He's the source of all that will be. Later on in the Gospel of John, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. That all of our hope and all the blessings and the benefits of the gospel are ours because we've been united to Christ. Christ has been raised and we have been raised with him. He's saying, as surely as I have life and cannot be held prisoner by the grave, so all who believe in me have life and cannot be held prisoner by the grave. And then she said, do you believe this? She says, I do. First, for our own sake, like Martha, I want you to consider how our comfort depends also on our knowledge of Christ. Listen to J.C. Ryle again. It says, many Christians complain from want of sensible comfort in their religion. They don't feel the inward peace which they desire. Let them know that like vague and definite and, and indefinite views of Christ too often lead or are the cause of all their perplexities. They must try to see more clearly the great object on which their faith rests. They must grasp more firmly his love and power toward them that believe and the riches he has laid up for them even now in the world. We are many of us sadly like Martha. A little general knowledge of Christ, the only Savior, is often all that we possess. But of the, fruitful, of the fullness that dwells in him, of his resurrection, his priesthood, his intercession, his unfailing compassion, we have tasted little or nothing at all. They are things of which our Lord might well say to many, as he did to Martha, do you believe this? Beloved, if you're one who is in here and you know little comfort in your Christian life, have you been lazy in the school of Christ? of learning him and knowing him. You realize this is why the Bible says that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. The Apostle Paul's driving motivation was to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Elsewhere, he writes that we are growing when we come to comprehend what surpasses knowledge, namely the love of Christ. Martha already knew about the love of Jesus, but she still had much more to learn, and so do we. Jesus Christ is more than a theological proposition in a systematic theology textbook. He is a friend who loves. He is a friend in death. And as the resurrection and the life, he is a friend forever. And so for you, you and I, in our own comfort, let us never grow weary of learning more about Christ. This is part of what we aim to do on Tuesday nights. It's what we do in our one another groups and our fellowship groups and all of these ways, in different ways. We want to try to spur one another on and encourage one another to know more of Christ. Let it never be, let that never be something in our church that's cheesy or weird, that the 
that the overly spiritual people do. Now let us be like Martha who knows of Christ and yet needs to know more of Christ for our great comfort in this life and in our death. Well, we're going to see that there's even more to learn because beginning in verse 30, we see that Christ is not just a friend forever, but he is a sympathetic Savior. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with him in her house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? There's so much in this passage to consider, but I just want to consider those two words in verse 35. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. If you're somebody that gets discouraged by memorizing scripture, this is where you want to begin. Really easy. Start here. Jesus wept. Charles Spurgeon said, there is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or any student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them, even though he should apply the microscope of the utmost attentive consideration. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3 that there is a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and there is a time to dance. Jesus understood and practiced these commands perfectly. You and I often say the wrong things at the wrong time, don't we? We talk when we should be quiet. We're quiet when we should talk. We rejoice when we should be mourning. And we mourn when we should be rejoicing. And yet Jesus was perfect in all of his wisdom in weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And so here we see that he was deeply moved with profound sorrow at the death of his friend whom he loved. And so he joined them in their sadness. And in verse 35, Jesus knew perfectly well that Lazarus would return to them and their sorrow would soon be turned to joy. He knew all of this. And even in spite of all of that knowledge, we read, Jesus wept. Octavius Winslow says, here was bereavement. And the affection that soothed it. Here was death and the essential life that conquered it. Here was the grave and the resurrection that emptied it. Here was the melting and weeping sensibility of a man in the closest alliance with divine majesty and commanding power of God. He says, what a study. The creator of all worlds, the author of all beings, the upholder of the universe, raining tears of human woe and sympathy upon a grave. Jesus wept. There is in these two words a lesson and a comfort. The lesson is this. It is not sinful to sorrow. 
There is nothing unworthy about a child of God in tears. Our Lord Jesus Christ wept. Would we be ashamed when we weep appropriately? The Lord Jesus Christ wept openly in front of others. He didn't try to turn away or find a place to get cleaned up. It was the only appropriate response to the reality that he was facing in that moment. Jesus wept. One of the problems of the church today, people talk all the time about this. They say, you know, one of the problems of the church today is that we're just so emotionally driven. It's all this emotionalism. And there's probably some truth to some of those concerns. But I think one of the problems of the church today is not that we are too emotionally driven, but that our emotions are not driven after the pattern of Christ. One commentator put it this way, let us remember these things in daily life and never be ashamed of walking in our master's footsteps. Let us strive to be men and women of a tender heart and a sympathizing spirit. Let us never be ashamed to weep with them that weep and rejoice with them that rejoice. Well would it be for the church and the world if there were more Christians of this stamp in character. Jeff wept. Jono wept. George wept. Why? Because when our emotions and affections are rightly ordered after the pattern of Christ, and we are confronted with the reality of sin and death in our own lives, it is only appropriate that we would imitate our Savior in his, in his humiliation. Jesus wept. He is the most manly man that has ever lived. And he wept. But there's also a comfort here. Jesus wept is one of the most profound statements of Christ's humanity. He understands our suffering. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And you and I need to be especially careful here when we read a verse like this, especially during Holy Week, with Good Friday and Ash Wednesday and all the considerations that follow those, that we don't confuse Jesus' humiliation, which is summarized here in verse 35, with his exaltation. The exalted Christ who cried over Lazarus does not now cry at the right hand of God. Jesus does not weep in heaven. When we weep, Jesus does not weep with us. And there's a lot of evangelical Christians out of a deep sentimentality that want to believe that when we weep, Jesus weeps. That's what it means for him to be a sympathetic savior. But that is not what that means. Jesus does not weep with us. And that is precisely the good news that you and I need. Weeping is a sign of suffering. 1 Peter 3 said that Christ suffered once for sins. If the exalted Christ continues to weep, then he continues to suffer. And if he continues to suffer, then he cannot say about his atoning work, it is finished. If he still weeps today, as he wept in Bethany in verse 35, then heaven is a realm of ongoing grief and we have no hope. 
So then what does the book of Hebrews mean then when it says that Christ is a sympathetic high priest? Doesn't that mean that he feels what we feel with us? Beloved, it's precisely here that we need to learn to make careful distinctions in our thinking about Christ. We need to be careful not to confuse sympathy with sentimentality. Kevin Young is especially helpful here. He says this, It is a glory beyond measure that the incarnate and the perpetual God-man is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But sympathy itself is not the point. The point is that because of the son's identification with his brothers, he was fully human just as we were, he can help us. The emphasis is not on Jesus feeling the right thing in heaven. Rather, the good news is that because he has felt what we felt, he will surely come to our aid. The doctrine of our sympathetic Savior should not be construed as the triumph of sentimentality. The point is not because Jesus wept, he still weeps, but because Jesus wept, he can help. The good news that you and I need in our suffering is not found in bringing the exalted Son of God back down into our misery. The good news that we need is that He experienced worse than we've ever experienced and He has purchased the right to set us free from our misery. We don't need a weeping Jesus. We need a reigning and a returning Jesus. And that's what we have. Stew away with that vague evangelical sentimentality of a Jesus weeping with us in heaven. That is a weak Jesus, and there is no good news in that. We need a Christ who reigns, who has conquered death, whose victory is ours, and who is coming again. Not one who continues to tear up, but one who will wipe away every tear. We need a friend, not who weeps, but a friend who wept. But we also see in verses 38 through 46, one more important point about Jesus. He's a friend who prays. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Herman Ritterboss writes, Enough now of tears and wailing. Enough honor has been stowed on death. Against the power of death, God's glory has now entered the arena. <laughs> I love that. And we see in verse 41, what does Jesus do? It says first that he lifted up his eyes. This is the lesson of Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Martha's eyes were fixed on the man in the tomb below. Jesus' eyes were fixed on the creator above. And Jesus knew where his help came from. And so he prayed. And notice that in Verse 41, second half of verse 41, he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, 
But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. It's a handful of things that we need to understand about what's going on here. First of all, the Bible teaches that sin hinders prayer. God does not hear the prayers of the wicked, the Bible says. And so if sin then creates a barrier between God and those who pray, well then what about the opposite? How is the opposite true? This is what the blind man in John 9 says about Jesus. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. That man, once blind, now seeing, is not just giving a general platitude about prayer. He is defending Jesus. He's saying, this is the one who does the will of God, and therefore this is the one to whom God listens. And so how could Jesus be so certain that Lazarus would be raised from the dead? It's because the Spirit directed Jesus in the will of his Father concerning everything that he taught and everything that he did. Remember, Jesus said, I don't speak by my own authority, but by the Father who has given me everything that I say and speak. And what did Jesus say to Martha all the way back up in verse 23? Your brother will rise again. Jesus cannot say one word apart from the will of the Father. He is one with the Father. And so the asking of the Son and the granting of the Father go together. And so here we see that in deep sadness for his friends, where is it that Jesus' assurance come from? How is he assured that the Father would answer his prayer? Or that he already had. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Jesus asked and Jesus received because he asked in faith with no invisible barrier of sin between himself and God. There was no sin giving the Father grounds to turn a deaf ear. Because of Jesus' extraordinary person and extraordinary life, the Father listened and he cannot deny him. That's why the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, think John 11, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, because of his fear of God. What then is the result in verses 41 and 42 of Jesus' prayer? It's interesting, isn't it, that before the result ever came, Jesus gave thanks. I'm thankful that you have answered my prayer. Can you imagine standing around in the crowd? What just happened? Did I miss it? And then in verse 43, the heavenly father glorified his righteous son. And the weeping Savior proved himself to be Almighty God. And in verse 44, the man who died came out. I wondered as I was studying this this week, is Lazarus like Paul coming back? And, you know, is it like, my desire is to depart, for that is way better. But to remain in the flesh seems to be more necessary for your account. I don't know what I'm doing here. But Jesus is the one that brought me back. I sure wish that I could be there instead of here, but I'm here. So there's got to be a good reason for it. And there was, as we've already considered. In verses 45 and 46, we see what happened. Many believed him. Remember, why did Jesus wait? So that the Son of God be glorified. That's what we see here. And secondly, that his elect would believe. Just a couple of applications from this paragraph. First, the twin purposes attending our, their suffering attend our suffering. That is, that the power of Jesus would be magnified in your circumstances. 
And that secondly, you would believe in him. Listen to these words by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He says, it makes all the difference in the world if you lose your job and say, this catastrophe is not for my dishonor and my hurt, but it is for the glory of God that Christ may be magnified. The doctor comes to you and says, I'm sorry to tell you that as far as I know, medical science can do absolutely nothing for you. Your case, from our point of view, is incurable. It's a wonderful thing to say then. My father measured this. He it is that put the spoon to my lips. The medicine may be a little bit bitter, but he knows what he's doing. He's a great physician. And he is the great resurrector. He's the one who's constantly able to bring life out of death. And out of the death of my circumstances, he is able to bring the life of joy and victory and triumph. I know that there are some of you in here who are enduring bitter, bitter providence. And you weep like Jesus weeps. And the truth of John 11, and Martha and Mary and Lazarus' life and in the life of his disciples is true for you as well. Though you may not see it yet, the power of the risen Christ will be magnified in your circumstances so that you may be strengthened in believing him. He is a good friend. But secondly, though you and I may not be able to bring the dead back to life, we can bring the word of Christ to them. We can do preparatory work. And we can do work afterwards. That according to the word of Christ, we can, on the one hand, take away stones. And we can, on the other hand, verse 44, unbind and let go. That is, we can remove stones of ignorance and error and prejudice and despair. And we can help new Christians walk in freedom from the death linens of fear and despair. As we do evangelism and discipleship wherever it is that God has called us. A.W. Pink said this, There is no higher privilege this side of heaven than for us to be used of the Lord in rolling away gravestones and removing grave cloths. But just know... As we see in verses 47 to the end of the chapter, when the great events of the gospel are proclaimed, different men will react differently. We see in 45 that many believed. Verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans are going to come take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not just for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. 
We see in 45, on the one hand, that many believed in him. We see, on the other hand, that many rejected him. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, I wonder if you've ever said something like, well, you know, listen, if I were able to see the things the disciples saw, if I saw Jesus actually performing these miracles, well, then I would believe. But I want you to consider for a moment that great signs and wonders don't have the power to convert anybody, even in the face of the great works of Christ. There are hearts that were hardened against him. Do you think your heart would fare any better? Now, friends, it is the grace of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts, not of miracles that our soul requires. But I want you to notice something else. Not only did Jesus divide, but he's also going to gather. It says here that the high priest Caiaphas prophesied, and he prophesied two things. He prophesied, first of all, that Jesus was going to die. Now, he didn't realize he was doing it, and yet the Lord, the first cause, is able to bring about his purposes through all kinds of second causes. We've been studying that, haven't we? This is what it says. That the Christ would die and then his death would be the way that he gathers God's children into God's family. And so the whole chapter ends with Jesus leaving Bethany and turning his face to Jerusalem. It's there that he would suffer and die at the hands of lawless men. He would be buried. But then after three days, he'd be raised from the dead by God's power. And the miracle of Bethany was a mini Easter Looking forward to a greater Easter, a greater resurrection. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And so the question at the heart of our passage needs to be posed to you. It should ring in your head and it should rattle in your heart. Do you believe that? Or are you still wrapped in the grave clothes of sin? leading to death. And if so, oh, friend, listen to me. If you hear Jesus' voice calling you to new life, to freedom from the power of sin and death, just as you hear now from the preaching of his word, that you would respond in faith to him and be saved. Just as Lazarus experienced his resurrection by hearing Christ's voice, you will be transformed by the power of his word. But to the rest of us, Christian, do you believe this? Do you believe that on a great day to come, Christ's shout will be heard like a trumpet throughout creation and the dead in Christ will rise? Do you believe that? Do you believe that in that day, he will bark out his command for us to come out and like Lazarus, we will do just that? Do you believe it? Beloved, this is the friend that we need. We need a friend who has conquered death by his resurrection. And on that great day to come, when Christ cries out once more, we will hear and we will know the voice of our good shepherd who loves us. We will know his voice. This is our Christ, a friend who loves, a friend in death, a friend who is a friend forever. Though you and I die, yet will we live with him. He is a friend who wept and yet does not weep now. He is a friend who divides and he's a friend that gathers. He has gathered us today and one day he will gather us with every one of his elect from all the ages into that glorious banquet feast. Happy Easter.
Let's pray.